Thank you, church. You can have a seat. What a great, great way to kick off the day and to worship together. God says, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be filled. What a great prayer to give back to him, knowing that he will, he will meet us where we are. Well, today it is my extreme honor to introduce to you, to introduce to some of you and to bring back home for others of you, our former high school pastor, Ellis Prince. Ellis, well, yeah, you can clap for that. Why don't you come on up well, well, so people can get used to looking at your mug and while I'm talking. The, uh, Ellis, is, uh, Ellis left us uh, several years ago now. How long has Gallery Church been going? How long did you guys move? Six Seven. years? Seven years. Seven years ago, Ellis and Ginger Prince and their amazing kids, Caleb and Lauren, they moved to Baltimore, moved to the Charm City. Now, when we started Westridge, I would go back to Virginia and people would say, hey, where'd you move? And I'd say, oh, we moved to Atlanta to start a church. Well, you guys know from being out here, this is not Atlanta. Uh, when I say that Ellis and Ginger moved to Baltimore, I mean they moved to Baltimore. They moved into the heart of the city, and uh, they have started a church that now meets in four locations and, uh, and is just doing some incredible things. And God is really using this man and his wife and his kids in, in tremendous ways. It is, it is something that you're a part of, church, as we invest in uh, the launch group. And even some of our what-if giving this year has went up to Gallery Church. And, and these guys are doing a tremendous job. It is, it, I'm just going to say it straight up. I didn't say it straight up last service. It is my favorite of our church plants that I go visit. So I won't be able to say that <laughs> to other guys that come up here. Yes, remind Damien that next week. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and one of my favorite people for sure. Would you please welcome Ellis Prince? as he takes us through today. Yeah, it's a, it is a privilege to be back, and um, I'm just going to pray here in just a second because I, I want to be a good steward of, our, of my time with you as a guest shepherd to care for you because I don't want to just get caught up in the emotion, uh, which I've been very emotional looking at some of um, my, I guess, past students that I had the privilege of ministering to that are now coming up and introducing me to their spouses and to their kids. And I'm like, man, I'm getting old fast. But uh, I am the youth pastor here that took all the fun out of ministry and uh, grew the ministry down. And, um, and uh, so those of you that have been around, you'll, you'll know that that's who I am. And so you'll get a chance to experience that in just a second. Um, but uh, it has been a joy to be back at Westridge. It, I, I'm a firm believer that the church is family. And, uh, and it has been really nice to be back and very thankful for your continued prayers and support. Um, and even recently, some financial resources you guys were able to send our way to help us renovate a church building that we were given. Um, and uh, it's just really some neat stories that I wish I had time to share. But we don't. And we've got a great text to talk through, at least an interesting text. When I got this email from Stephanie and Paul um, inviting me to come, and I'm like, oh, great. What text do I get to teach on? I looked at it, and I'm like, What? Who did I offend at Westridge that they would invite me back to teach this, <laughs> you know? Um, but um, we're going to wrestle in it because I really do feel like there's something that God has for us very special today. So let's pray and um, then we'll get started. Father, it's a joy uh, to be back with my family here at Westridge. But Father, I also want to just be a great steward of, 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 this, of this passage that Peter wrote to, um, to his church and that we get to benefit from today. Father, there's a world that's watching the church to see if the tomb really is empty. There are people that are deciding on whether or not Jesus is resurrected and alive at the Father's right hand. And they are deciding that based upon what they see in our homes. And so, Father, today, 
um, is my prayer that is, as, as, as a guest shepherd in this family that I, that I care for these sheep, that, that they feel loved by you, that they feel the arms of their big brother Jesus around them, and they feel empowered by your spirit to be a display of Christ that they feel cared for and loved for who they are and what circumstances they're going through. Father, I pray for those today right now that are struggling with things that they just wish they could share with somebody. And so, Father, I pray that today they would find hope in Christ here today with this family. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start by just sharing you a portion of a story I'm going to end on in just a minute. But when we moved to Baltimore in 2008, uh, January of that year, um, I got reintroduced back to snow. You guys had some snow this year. I don't know how many of you got stuck in that one-inch storm you guys got um, back um, in the early part of the year, and the whole city was shut down for days, and everybody was impeaching your mayor and every political leader because they didn't respond well, and some of you actually served water on the highways. I mean, it was really a nightmare for you, and you got an inch of snow. Um, well, back when we moved to Baltimore, we got 81 inches of snow in six weeks. Um, just, just let that rest on you just for a moment. I wasn't, I, I knew going back up to the Northeast that we were going to get snow and, um, and it was a lot of fun, um, at first, but, uh, we got 81 inches of snow and, it, and we were, it was so much snow coming that we were using our recycling bin and packing it full of the nice powdery white stuff and making igloos in front of our row houses in the city. So much so that we built a three-bedroom row home on the sidewalk in the parking spots where people in the neighborhood would have to walk through our home um, in order. To, I mean, it was literally, the, we just, we didn't get the roof on it because I wasn't quite the engineer. I, didn't, I only had one friend from Georgia Tech and he wouldn't help me put the roof on the place. But um, but we were, we were just overwhelmed by the amount of snow and the amount of interaction we were getting as a family with it. But then one day while I'm out shoveling snow, my neighbor across the street who I had not met yet crosses his mammoth snowbank, walks across the street, crosses my mammoth snowbank, and he walks up to me and he says this. He says, you're a Christian, aren't you? Apparently, there's a Christian way of shoveling the snow, and then there's a heathen way of shoveling the snow. Because I had no, I mean, there was nothing else in my mind that I could think of was that apparently there was, this, this represents Christ at some level, you know, and my, maybe it was, I, I formed my snowbank into an empty tomb. I don't know what it was, but um, I'm going to come back to this story in just a moment. But when I look at this letter that Peter wrote to the early church, what I find isn't just knowledge that he's sharing with us, but he loved these people. I just need you to grasp that just for a second. Peter loved these people. And if you read this letter and you don't feel a love of, uh, of, a, of somebody that, that was responsible for shepherding the good news of Jesus Christ, shepherding the hope that you've been talking about for several weeks now, if you don't sense in Peter that he loved these people, then we're missing the whole point of this letter. He was looking at a church that was being persecuted under an oppressive empire where many of them were being murdered for their faith. Others of them were being outcast from society, having property taken away, were being scattered from their homes, were being ridiculed and, and mocked in levels that many of us in here have never even began to understand. And when you see Peter addressing this early church 
as a man that had spent time with Jesus, denied Jesus himself, had, was restored by Jesus, was building the church as Jesus promised. And he's looking at people and he's looking at them eyeball to eyeball. And he's saying to them, let me tell you what your identity in Christ really is. Let me tell you why you're alive today. This is the purpose that you exist I mean, great authority Peter had to talk about this issue because he was encouraged by Jesus himself to be a foundation upon which the church could be built. And he was empowering him through his spirit to do so. And Peter's, for two, almost three chapters now, according to the way we break up the Bible, has been writing in this letter to them about who they are in Christ and the hope that they have as a special people. But then it's like as if in this particular chapter 3, which we break, break down here just for a minute, we begin to see at the end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter, or beginning of chapter 3, it's like as if he's paused in his audience as he's talking about their identity and he's focusing in on just a few people for a moment. Where he's like, you know what? Some of you are slaves in this empire. And he talks to them with great love and concern about what the hope in Christ looks like in the midst of their slavery. And then he turns to another people group in his church and he's looking eyeball to eyeball with some ladies and he's saying to these ladies, let me tell you, I understand, I, I'm aware of what you're facing and let me tell you about the hope you have in Christ walking in this. And then he looks at men in his church and he says, let me tell you about what it's like that I see in you. So he's been talking about this identity and this purpose and his great love for them and who God wants them to be and how he wants them to carry that good news of hope in Christ around the world. But now he's pausing in the midst of his family, church family, and addressing some serious issues that they were facing in their time that were potentially going to derail their faith, rob them of their joy, steal their hope continue to cause them to go home and hate their lives. And he's saying, let me tell you about how their tomb is empty and Jesus is alive and how that impacts your home. And so that's the premise for the words that we're about ready to read here to get together. Let's look at verse one. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conflict, excuse me, by the conduct of their wives. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting of gold on the gold jewelry and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, called him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may be honored. As I began to just pray about this, you know, I, I was looking forward to coming back and being here and just the excitement and the energy of that, knowing that over half of you, I have no idea, you know, have any idea who I was. We weren't here at the same time. Seven years is a big period. I'm like, God, why this text? Why me? Why now? Why would you want me to come in and talk to the people of Westridge about this? One of the things that has been, I'm finding out as a reality for Ginger and I in Baltimore, you know, less than 4% of our city goes to church on Sunday. There's 620,000 people that live in the city limits and less than 4% of that will go to church on a Sunday. Westridge, in your current state, 
would be the second largest church in our entire state. Um, churches are considered mega when you're over 500 in the state of Maryland. But yet our population in Maryland, just from the Baltimore city limits to the DC city limits is more than the entire state of Alabama. That's 45 miles. There's more people that live in that stretch of highway than in the entire state of Alabama. And you guys play better football. I understand that, but that's not the point. Okay. Um, but it's not the, I'm not going to get you distracted by that. Man, there's a very important lesson coming for you, so don't start thinking football. But when, I, but when I began to think about this particular text, I came across this quote, a quote by Karen Jobes, and I put it up on the screen for you, is how ironic it is, is that the words that first century slaves, wives, and husbands would have read as affirming and empowering are criticized by some today as enslaving and oppressive. I'm like, man, that's, that's, that's what I have encountered as a pastor now for 20 years as it relates to the tension about what the home is supposed to be like between men and women. How people have stood strong and confident as I am the spiritual leader in my home and this is what it looks like. And they'll cite this particular passage and it looks nothing like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their home doesn't look anything like a tomb being empty and Jesus being alive and walking around in power, in might, in representing us at the right hand of the Father. Our our marriages don't look like that. But yet many times we've come to a text like this that in the early church, when Peter shared this with them, they exploded across the globe. Within 300 years, they had changed the entire Roman Empire. They didn't have a Bible in their hand. They had their their testimony and the proof that the tomb was empty. And they began to walk in these teachings of people like Peter about what it looked like. And people were, by the thousands and tens of thousands, were choosing to follow Christ. And a passage like this was causing that to happen. So then we turn to a passage like this or things that Paul wrote to the early church and start talking about the role between men and women in their relationships, especially in a marriage. And we begin to find that the church gets divided, gets upset, and things like anger sets in or things like um, some sort of hostility and frustration and, and all these other spirit fruits that are from the world's list, if you look at the text in the Bible. Versus fruits of the spirit like love, joy, peace, and perseverance, and gentleness, and kindness. All these other fruits are not what we normally feel in response to a text like this. And why would it be so encouraging in the first century, but yet so discouraging in our time? And I feel like there's something very important for us because Peter in this whole book is talking to a bunch of people that he loves about their hope in Christ And how they are going to tell the world about Jesus. And marriages are an important part of that. This passage slices through the stereotypes in which women and men easily fell in the ancient world. And I just need to take a minute to help you to grasp that. Because many of us, we have a hard time when we come to a text like this. Because we begin to think that it's only about where we are now. And and we read the Bible just in the filter of what it is that we're currently dealing with. And what I'm hoping to be able to do in these next few minutes is to help you find what would it have been like to be a first century spouse. What was it like underneath the Roman Empire to begin to believe in Jesus and me have this understanding that if I put my faith in Christ, I'm a new creation. 
The old is gone and the new has come and I need to walk as a new creature, not as an old creature. I need to walk in a new way and not in an old way, but when everybody in culture is walking this way and God is saying, I need you to walk this way, then it becomes very difficult and confusing where it's like, wait a minute, if this is happening, then everybody else is going this way and we process it. It impacts our interpretation of what it is that we're supposed to do. And so in verse 3, I began to find in this passage that the women in first century time period that they were being written to were many times facing similar challenges that you and I face today. When we begin to look at things that he's talking to them about, like their hair and their dress and their jewelry and their clothes. And if it was continuing on, I'm sure there would be things like diets and bodybuilding and strength and fast chariots because... They didn't have cars back then, you know, and, and things that would impact their symbol for power and control. And, and it would almost be like they're walking through the checkout at a grocery store with all the magazines that would be telling him, this is what a real woman is. Or for us men, that they were walking, we walk through a store and see magazines telling us, this is what real men ought to be. This is what it means to be a powerful man in our culture, and our society. And the women in first century were facing similar issues of trying to figure out what does it mean for me to walk after Christ in a culture that says women ought to be like this. And men saying, what does it ta- look like for me to follow after Christ? But it says the culture saying men only need to be like this. And Peter's looking at them and saying, look, it's important that we figure this out. Some of the background for this is, is that when you and I follow after Christ, our life is supposed to look different. In the first century, the way that men and women interacted with one another had a huge impact on their societal status. It was a situation where if, if a husband had a particular faith or like a God that he worshiped in that culture, it was already assumed that the wife marrying him would assume worship of that God. And there was no other option. If she didn't worship that God, she was expelled from the home. And if they had small girls or daughters, many times they were expelled with them because women were not valued in that culture and were left on the streets. Many times they were taken into captivity, forced into slavery, prostitution. They were forced into all kinds of activity. And in the first century, when Peter's addressing women in his church, they were addressing people that had been hurt or were living in fear because if they worshiped God and their husband was not worshiping God, it had an impact on their societal status. The behavior of a spouse outside of the home was significantly different than it was today. There are similarities that we could probably pull from, but one of the things was is that women didn't leave the home without the husband's permission. And if they did, they wouldn't wear all of their gold jewelry and their gold sandals because they weren't trying to draw attention to themselves. And so Peter is saying to them, look, you're going to be coming to worship God. You need to make sure that you that you are incognito and you're doing this. He's trying to encourage them to understand that that, look, there are some things that could happen in your life that if by chance people found out about this in the wrong way, it's going to impact the kingdom of God in a very negative way. The social order of the empire had an incredible impact on all the decisions that they had to make. Converted spouses no doubt experienced incredible amounts of confusion in who their identity in Christ was in dealing with an an unbelieving spouse in this new societal hierarchy that they found themselves in. 
The very fact that women would adopt in a religion was very dangerous for them. Husbands in a society that would not have a wife following after them many times lost all their say in the community. They couldn't hold any positions of honor. They were not allowed to continue to function in their business. If he could not manage his home or he, and people's perception was that he was weak and that things were happening that, were, that he should be controlling, they weren't, his entire life could be taken away from them. They could have lost everything. Were pressures that they were facing. A wife worshiping Jesus and going to a church service and making friends was not normal in society. In first century, women's friends were only the friends that her husband would introduce them to. So whatever social circle her husband was in was the social circle that she was in. Now imagine being a first century woman believing in Christ, going to worship with people passionately about Jesus and celebrating the tomb is empty, and then feeling like, how do, I, how do I interact with these people? Because if I become close to them and I love them and we become like family, then, then, then it's going to hurt my husband because I'm not allowed to have friends outside of the home. And there's incredible amounts of pressure. And I could go on and on and on about the differences between the way that we live and what the things that they were facing. But how a woman and a man lived out the hope that they have in Jesus was extremely important to them. Peter identified this. He calls it out by saying, look, I know that living on mission and your hope in Jesus Christ is important, but it impacts you and your spouse in their relationship. It should make us feel good that Peter noticed it and didn't just go by it and just say, oh, it's all about the mission. He's like, look, I know this impacts you. To a woman, suppose the real beauty, this is what Peter is saying. Peter is like, I, there's another way of living that is important for you to understand. He says, this is radically different. And he's addressing them and he's saying, look, suppose that your full stature as a daughter of God hinges not on what you put on the outside of you, but what grows out from the inside of you, your real character, your real virtue. That you're not just merely walking around with status on the outside, but you're exuding this fruit of God's spirit in your life that, that exudes great character. Radically different way of thinking for these women in the first century. But also radically different for men was this idea that they could be truly fulfilled by treating their wife as an equal. Honoring them, loving them, caring for them treating them with great dignity and respect. Peter is saying to them, look, this is different than what culture is saying for you to do. And whether your wife is a believer or an unbeliever, you can love her and by loving her the right way can prove that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive and can give people hope for a new day. And this is what Peter is beginning to say. There's a radically new shift in thinking that's going on. We need this reality to sink in just for a moment because we know now that it's about ready to come back around home for us. It makes it easy for us just to talk about what they were dealing with, but what it would be like for us to deal with. And one of the things that I'm getting used to, this is a side note, one of the things I'm getting used to here at Westridge is I'm not used to having myself on screens. And so those of you that are looking to the left and right are very confusing to me, all right? Our churches are a lot more smaller and more intimate. And there's a lot more eye contact. But for those of you that are looking over there, I'm like, why are they so bored already? You know, I'm like, oh, okay. All right. So that's my distraction. So it'll help me if you look this way. All right. But we gravitate as a people in our culture 
towards the ways that all men function, all women function as a current standard. That's not what Jesus died for. We are such victims of going with the flow. Many times we think that we're not going with the flow, but we really are going with the flow. And what I feel like this series is doing for Westridge's church family is to say, because of the hope we have in Christ, we can stop and get the right focus. We can deal with the circumstances that we find ourselves in with great insight and wisdom and walk in a way that would cause people to believe that the father sent the son. How does my relationship with my wife and the interactions that I have with her show an example of Jesus Christ and the hope that I have in him? Yeah, I almost feel like we need to go back to the 1980s and dig up all of our old WWJD bracelets and start wearing them again. You know, it's like, what would Jesus do in my marriage? It was a great fad. Christian bookstores made millions. But really, in all reality, it's really what Peter is saying here. In light of the hope that I have, how do I treat my spouse? In light of the truth about what Jesus Christ has done for me, how do I interact with my spouse in a way that would cause people to think that Jesus is alive? It's so easy in our culture today, and it's so almost humorous for me as a pastor how many people that I run into that only want to focus on the first six verses? How many men are like, yeah, let's read that. I need to go home and teach my wife how to, I'm like, no, let's focus on verse seven for a minute. Oh no, there's only one verse. They have six. Men are that way. It's all about the numbers. But yet we don't, we, we, we miss the heart behind what God is saying through Peter to this early church. And I feel like this Because of our hope in Jesus, I feel like Peter is saying here that there are two big goals that we need to strive for. And because we're so worried about what submission means and what a woman's supposed to do and what a man's supposed to do, we miss out on what the goal is of what a healthy marriage is supposed to be about. And in this passage, I begin to find that this passage screams out that it needs to be about non-Christian following husbands be one to faith. And if there's an application to the end of that, it also could be that non-Christian wives can be one to faith. Peter seems to be saying that if we model this in a special way, that there could be a way that people that do not believe in Jesus would come to know Jesus in our own homes and we're married to them. If we figure this out, it's so hard for me not to bring some of the conversations that I had after the first service into this teaching. Several ladies came up to me to share with me their story about their their husband's conversions. And I tell you guys, this works. When we figure out what Peter was encouraging the early ladies in the church movement to do, we can find hope for you and I. The problem is we live in a culture and a society that we're all about the fact that it needs to be done faster. We've gotten over our fear of microwave ovens in my generation. And now everybody has one and that's all we cook with. But yet now the one minute meal is no longer fast enough and we stand there tapping our hands to the timer ticking down to a microwave oven because it's just not fast enough anymore. And we want things quicker and done quicker and done quicker when in all reality is we don't understand that sometimes we need to lay our lives down for somebody else. One of the things that Peter did here is he gave the first century women a role model. 
he brings up Sarah, which is very culturally relevant because back in Greco-Roman culture, they all had role models. They had people that they would celebrate. You can go back and read secular writers from the first century and all the different men and women that they celebrated and they glorified, much like we do celebrities today and how we look up to them and model our lives after them. It was the same thing for them. And Peter was saying, look, you're grafted into another lineage You have a new family that you now get to follow in. And let me tell you about the first lady of this family. Her name is Sarah. And men get confused because in the first six verses, we like the fact that Sarah called him what? Lord. So therefore, we have our Lord chair in the home. We have that big chair. We sit in, prop our feet up, and we love to be celebrated as Lord. And that has nothing to do with the example of Abraham and Sarah. By the way, Sarah loved Abraham in such a way that she saved his, can I say but here? I can say in Baltimore, it's not offensive. I don't know if it's that way here or not. I'm above the Mason-Dixon line, you can get away with a lot more. All right? I know I'm in in the heart of Chick-fil-A country. I don't want to offend, you know? But one of the things that I found here is that you look at multiple occasions when Abraham was lying leading his family in the wrong direction. And Sarah stepped in, followed along with her husband, loved him in such a way that kept him literally alive. We seem to miss out on that that part of Sarah's story. Sarah was a great example of a wife who did what was right and didn't give away, didn't give way in her heart to developing the hatred and the hostility that so quickly can creep in. These girls in the first century church needed a role model and Peter gave them one. I love some of the things that God's placed on Brian and Amy's heart for you. My wife and I had the benefit of reading through their book and and benefiting of serving on their staff and have a chance to witness um, their love and concern for pastors and planters. And let me tell you this, in light of all that guys and women face in our society today, you need to have somebody cheering for your marriage. And you have a great pastor and wife as an example of that. But I want to encourage you guys today that Peter saw the same need in the early church. And he's saying to them, you need to understand that your marriage is a vital testimony to that the tomb is empty. One of the things that I think is really important for me to say here as a side note. Because Peter is talking about sticking it out and loving your husband, Peter is not condoning spousal abuse. Even in Greco-Roman writing, it was never condoned in the first century for a man to beat his wife. A slave was a different story. Slavery was in the passage last week, but not in this passage this week. But it was never accepted in a cultural society in Rome. That's why I don't think Peter mentions it here. But there's been too many women that have been told by people in the church, oh, you got to stick with it even though he's beaten you. That's not what's happening here. Even if you go to verse 7, it's talking about Peter saying to men, look, you might be physically more strong than your wife, but you need to love her and care for her in a gentle way. Now, mind you, this is the 21st century, and many of the women in this room can beat up their spouses. I mean, that's just keeping it real. But in the first century, that, that, that's not, it was not accepted. And if you're in a relationship, I would encourage you right now to seek help. 
there's a way for you to prove that the tomb is empty to your spouse, but you don't have to take it. The second amazing point that Peter is talking about here, I think is really important. It's really tagged on to the very end so that your prayers may not be hindered. We overlook this because this isn't a passage that we go to to teach on prayer life. But much like Paul talking to the Colossian church and Paul talking to the Ephesians church, the Ephesus church and Paul talking to the church in Galatia, the relationship in marriage had everything to do with teachings in and around the fruits of the spirit, always expressed in marriage, always tied in at some point in the verses before, after, or around. Somehow when the Holy Spirit renews us and the fruits of God's spirit begin to take root in us, there's always this relationship of husband and wife. And then Peter here begins to say, look, if all of this is functioning well, your prayers are not going to be hindered. But the thing that I'm frustrated by as a pastor in our time is how many couples can't stand to pray together, but yet they both believe in Jesus. You both claim that the tomb is empty, but you won't hold one another and sit before the Father and talk to the Father because you can't stand to hold one another. There's tension, even amongst believers. And those of you that are skeptical in here today, just for a moment, I want to talk to just the believers because my hope is, is that in a minute when you see the believers begin to respond in their marriages this way, it is more affirmation for you that it's true, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus did die on the cross for you, and that he did resurrect, and he is at the Father's right hand, and it's all true. And you're going to see it not by the words that's ever spoken from this stage. You're going to see it in the marriages of the people sitting in the pews around you. It's going to be the power of the cross is going to be evident there. But too often, we do not even take time to evaluate the prayer life in our marriages. We're not encouraged to pray with one another. We don't take the time outside of a meal to bow our heads in any type of, of, of song or silence, however you do your prayers around the table. But if we are going to have marriages that prove that the tomb is empty, we are going to have marriages that begin to pray with one another and we pray with each other because we want to. Not because we're desperate for healing, but because we love our spouses and we want to honor God with it. I share with you at the beginning about my story about snow shoveling. Let me go back there just for a minute. And I want to end this in a way hopefully be encouraging to all of you. When the guy crossed the street, (coughs) excuse me, and he claimed and he challenged me by being a Christian. He's like, you are a Christian. And I've finished looking for my ichthu symbol in the back of my snow shovel and everything that I would have had that would have adorned myself as a Christian. I'm like, man, I'm just wearing snow, snow jacket, jeans and snow gloves and a stocking cap. Nothing about me screamed Christian. And then he went on to say this. He says, and this really shocked me and it's going to shock some of you here in just a moment. He says, I've been watching you through your windows. And immediately my brain goes to all the nights that I ran from my bedroom to the refrigerator, not really concerned about what I was wearing (laughs) or how much I was wearing. So I need to say, from that point in time, before I went to bed, my blinds were always closed. But then he went on to say this. He says, I've been watching you pray with people in your living room. I don't have time to get into Galatians 5 with you. I don't have time to continue to talk about the importance of this topic. All I have to say is this. It's the same thing Paul told the church in Colossae in chapter 4 of his letter to them. 
when he said to them, you need to be mindful that outsiders are watching you. How you and I live out the hope we have in Jesus Christ in our marriages proves to people that Jesus died on a cross, went into a tomb, came out three days later, and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The hope that we have that someday that Jesus is going to come back and all of this is going to be done is going to be proven to many, not by a sermon preached, but by your life lived in your marriage. People are going to believe that the Father sent the Son by how he sees husbands and wives loving one another. And this is why I feel like Peter was so passionately communicating to the early church about their purpose and identity. Then he pauses for a moment and speaks on slavery, speaks on wives, and speaks on husbands before he starts talking to them about leadership. Is because he knew that the loudest voice of hope was going to be how husbands and wives loved one another in honor of Jesus Christ. The hope that we have in Jesus is greater than any challenge you and I will ever face in our marriages. Let's pray together. Father, my desire for my family here is that they would not lose sight of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. that they would learn to pray together. That they would learn to look into each other's eyes and say, how do I honor Christ in this relationship? Father, there's a world out there that's watching us and they're not believing in you. It's a fact. We confess that. We ask you to forgive us for that. But Father, I pray that the world would come to know your great and lavish love on us through how we love our spouses. Let your spirit guide us, Father, to all the wisdom that's from heaven, to know when to speak and when not to speak, when to be gentle, when to be firm, when to continue to to exude long-suffering and perseverance and kindness, and, and when, Father, when, Father, to just to just weep and cry, when to laugh, when to seek help. But Father, we have a hope in Christ that is like nothing that we've ever experienced before. There's a hope that we have in Jesus that can conquer everything that we face. So Father, I pray that today that my brothers and sisters here would be encouraged to pause today and this week to sit with their spouses and with their families and just evaluate how they prove their hope in Christ, not only to one another, but to the neighbors that are watching. And we pray this in Jesus' name.